Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Thursday, August 8th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Biden's speech in Iowa, Booker's speech in Charleston, Sanders promises to release info about extraterrestrials if he obtains any, Buttigieg meets with superdelegates, Gabbard is currently training with the Army National Guard, Yang qualifies for September and October for real this time, and the generational divide on electability. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, I want to call your attention to a speech that Joe Biden gave yesterday in Burlington, Iowa. This was streamed live just before noon, and it didn't make the cut for yesterday's show, but I saw so much Twitter activity around it, I went ahead and grabbed the audio so I could listen later. Biden's speech went directly at President Trump through the lens of American history and presidential leadership and focused explicitly on Trump's encouragement of white supremacists and his failure to unite the country in times of crisis. This is something that Biden is really good at, and it harkens back to his initial campaign launch video when he suggested that one term of Trump would be a historical aberration, but two terms would change the character of our nation. It's a long speech, and there's a link in the show notes to it. I'm going to play just a two-minute segment here from near the beginning. Listen in. Go back to the beginning. Thomas Jefferson wrote what many believe to be the most important document, civil document in human history. But he was a slaveholder. We've never lived up to our American ideals. Jefferson himself didn't. But what he wrote has pulled us towards justice for more than two centuries, and it still does. It remains this nation's North Star. Take a look at the Klan, Ku Klux Klan. After the Civil War, we saw a rise in the Klan. It was beaten down only to rise up again in the 20s. In fact, in August, of 1925, 30,000 fully clad Klansmen in their robes and pointed hats marched down Pennsylvania Avenue, the streets of Washington. Imagine, imagine that today. And then the Klan was once again beaten back as it was after the Civil War. How? The courts, the press, and yes, presidents stood against them. And that is the point. Our institutions often imperfectly stood against hate at moments when we were most tested. American presidents have stepped up in the past. George H.W. Bush renouncing his membership in the NRA. President Clinton after Oklahoma City. George W. Bush going to a mosque after 9-11. President Obama after Charleston. Presidents who led, who opposed, chose to fight for what the best of American character is about. There's deafening silence now. Next up, Senator Cory Booker gave his own speech, actually earlier in the same day as Biden, at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Again, the speech was rather long, at about 30 minutes, so as much as I would like to give you the whole thing, I have to give you a little highlight. 
The speech was broadly about gun violence, racism, the nature of tolerance and what that ought to mean, plus, like Biden, a nuanced discussion of American history and values. And a quick note, the audio here is super, super scratchy. That comes from the source, and I did spend some effort trying to fix it, and it helped a little. So I hope you can listen past the scratchy quality and hear what Booker is saying. And yes, there is a link in the show notes to the whole thing. It is well worth your time. Listen in. This is the crossroads, which is why we can't let these conversations devolve into the impotent simplicity of who is or isn't a racist. Because of the answer to the question, do racism and white supremacy exist, is yes. Then the real question isn't who is or isn't a racist, but who is and isn't doing something about it. This is a question that has a deep moral resonance. It's not enough to say I'm not a racist. We must be anti-racism because there's no neutrality in this fight. You are either an agent of justice or you are contributing to the problem. Addressing this, and we must understand this, addressing this is not an act of charity or philanthropy. It is an issue of national security. It is an issue of patriotism. It is an issue of love. And we can't begin to express that love unless we have a real conversation that we need to be first changing our laws. Dr. King once said that, I quote, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. We have the power to act, and we can act to legislate safety even if we cannot legislate love. We must act to prevent people who should not have guns from getting them. Next up, something to lighten the mood, and it's also a topic I've always wondered about. One of the reasons to seek the presidency, at least for me, would be that you would presumably gain access to a bunch of top-secret government info, and I would love to know if there's any kooky ET stuff in there. Now, I presume there isn't, or that whatever we have is extremely boring, but still, that is legitimately one thing I would request a detailed briefing on, probably within my first week or two in office. Like, show me whatever we've got, sit me down, explain it all, start from the beginning. You know what I mean? The same thing is true of UFOs, which, while not necessarily extraterrestrial in origin, likely do have some pretty interesting background that, you know, maybe our Air Force can pass along, or maybe our intelligence services know something about. Well, the next best thing to getting this info yourself as president is getting a candidate to promise to pass that info along. On the Joe Rogan Show on Tuesday, Senator Bernie Sanders told Rogan that if elected, he would pass along any information pertinent to UFOs and extraterrestrial beings. He also suggested this was partly because his wife is apparently very curious as well and has already asked him whether, as a senator, he has access to any special records. He claims he does not. But that's what you would claim, right? Hmm. 
Anyway, in a surprising twist, this was all written up in an article by Adam K. Raymond in New York Magazine, and I think you need to hear just a snippet because it's bonkers. Reading from the end of that article, quote, Trump was the preferred candidate of many in the UFO set in 2016, not because he had evinced any support for releasing documents related to UFOs. In fact, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman John Podesta is a well-known believer, and Clinton had nodded towards spilling the beans on UFOs once she got to the White House, but because of Trump's apparent willingness to burn everything down. As one UFO hunter told CNN in 2015, my candidate is Donald Trump because he's not a politician. I could be wrong, but the extraterrestrials tell me that Donald Trump is the one to lead America. End quote. And that is a quote for the ages. The Election Ride Home is brought to you by My Wall Street. Now look, when I started investing, there was a world of options open to me, and that was the problem. There are a zillion stocks you can buy, but it's super hard to know which of them are any good. It's easy to find a broker who will let you buy whatever you want, but you need somebody doing the research on the ground who can tell you which stocks are actually worth it. And that's where My Wall Street comes in. They are not a broker, so you can trust them to make unbiased recommendations. They research the stocks, they give you a short list of the best ones, and then you can pick which of those you might want to buy. My Wall Street helps you enter the world of investing with a trustworthy partner at your side. It helps you grow into investing as you keep going. And best of all, Election Ride Home listeners can access the entire My Wall Street app for free and use it for 30 days instead of the normal seven-day trial. After 30 days of awesome free research, you can stick with their expert guidance for just $9.99 a month. So visit MyWallStreet.com slash ride to download the app now and get access to their market beating stock picks and expert guidance. There is a link to that in the show notes up top, but once more, that is spelled mywallst.com slash ride. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Representative Tulsi Gabbard is currently in a two-week training exercise for the Army National Guard. And that means she is in Indonesia currently and therefore not able to campaign like the other candidates. As one of the few veterans in this field, and indeed the only one currently serving, Gabbard takes this stuff seriously. A Washington Times article detailed Gabbard's service and noted its possible effect on her eligibility for the September debate. She has already cleared the donor threshold, but still needs three more polling results at 2% or higher to reach either September or October. She already has a bunch of 1% results, so I think Gabbard is one of those potential October add-ons that we've been talking about. Anyway, reading from the Washington Times, this is a quote from Kathy Allen, whom the Times described as a Democratic strategist. She's talking about the poll numbers here. Quote, Her time away from military service is not what will keep her from the next set of debates. Like several of her counterparts, she has little means of catching up before the debates, as there is no mechanism for making up those numbers except for the debate. Her military service and media surrounding it is likely to be the only major boost she could receive before the next debate qualifying numbers are due. The public is ready for the race to be cut at least in half. She seems one of those likely to be in the cuts. 
end quote. And next up, good news for Andrew Yang. He has indeed qualified for the September and October debates, having picked up another 2% result in a qualifying poll. That poll came this morning from Monmouth University and looked at likely caucus-goers. It put him right at 2%, which is where he needed to be. So he is in those debates, and now there are nine qualified candidates, with Castro as my prediction for the next to qualify. Now, this poll was also good news for billionaire Tom Steyer, who is rapidly rising from near-total obscurity to a kind of viable presidential candidate. He got 3% in this poll, and he already had two other qualifying polls. Now, he still needs one more poll, plus the donors, to make it to the debate stage, but Steyer only announced his campaign on July 8th. Today is August 8th. He's been in the race for one month, and he's legitimately close to making the debate next month. That is wild stuff. Other low-polling candidates who did well in this poll include Senator Amy Klobuchar, who got 3%, but didn't officially need that as she already had a 2% result that cemented her place in the debates. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand also picked up her first 2% result in this period, meaning she needs three more plus some donors to get there. Sanders had a surprisingly weak showing, though, dropping to just 9% down from 16% in April. Meanwhile, Biden still leads the pack at 28%, Warren has 19%, Harris has 11%, and Buttigieg ties Sanders at 9%. So the top five are still in there, though the mix keeps kind of changing. This is to be expected. The real questions at this point are whether anybody can leap above Biden or whether anybody else can break into that top tier. Meanwhile, there are still 10 candidates who don't have any qualifying polls for the upcoming debate. Some of them have literally 0% in everything. Others have a handful of 1% results. Either way, not enough to make it and not a lot of time either. Next up, let's talk about superdelegates. These are people within the Democratic Party who have a superpower. They can vote for a candidate at the Democratic Convention without representing a state that has held a primary or caucus. Roughly 15% of all voting power at the convention is held by superdelegates. These are typically people who have some kind of position within the party, either an actual Democratic Party job or notable members of Congress or governors and so on. So the deal with superdelegates is that they may vote for whomever they wish. But as of 2018, they can only do so under very special circumstances. And given that they represent 15% of the overall voting power, with this large field of candidates, that voting block might, maybe, probably not, but might matter. We could head into this nominating convention without a clear majority winner. That is what's called a contested convention. And the last time Democrats have seen one was in 1952. So the likelihood of that actually occurring next year is slim. But still, it's a thing that can happen. And in that case, that is when the superdelegates actually get to vote. That's the rule change from 2018. Prior to that, they voted on the first ballot. So they could actually swing the result right there. Now, they do not vote on that first ballot. That's just for pledged delegates from the states. But if you don't have a clear winner on the first go, the superdelegates join the voting pool. And that's where stuff gets interesting. Well, here's some news. Mayor Pete Buttigieg is actively courting those superdelegates just in case. Reading from a Daily Beast story written by Adam Wren, quote, The South Bend mayor's team held a conference call with a group of so-called superdelegates on Monday to ask them for their support, according to an invite obtained by the Daily Beast. 
It was just the latest sign that the mayor's aides are still playing catch-up against competitors such as former Vice President Joe Biden, who has been cultivating relationships with party insiders for nearly 40 years. But it also signals that, for all the focus on the early voting states, Buttigieg's team sees a convention floor fight as a possible path towards securing the party's nomination. End quote. Again, very unlikely, but possible. So, the Daily Beast managed to call in and just listen during the call. What they heard was pretty straightforward, and actually something that the other candidates are probably doing too, we just don't have a first-hand account of those efforts. Essentially, the call was about where Buttigieg stands on various issues and a request for support just in case. Reading once more from the article, quote, Nobody wants to anticipate a campaign where we have to go to a second ballot. But if you're smart, you have to, said Jed Ober, Hillary for America's deputy delegate director in 2016 and chief of staff to Representative Susan Wilde of Pennsylvania, who is uncommitted but was invited to the call. Ober joined Monday's call on Wilde's behalf. He said the Buttigieg campaign was the first to reach out this cycle and that all signs point to them building a sophisticated delegate wrangling operation. Any of these campaigns that have a legitimate shot to win should be doing this, Ober said. End quote. And last up today, in a story for 538, Aaron Doherty examined the question of electability. Now, we've talked about this somewhat before, but the key idea here is that there is an argument within the Democratic Party about how we should choose a candidate. Do we choose one who we think can beat the other person, or do we choose someone who closely mirrors our own values on positions? Now, obviously, everybody is somewhere in the middle on those two positions, but people tend to lean one way or another. Personally, I lean differently depending on how optimistic I'm feeling on a given day. All right, so what does the data tell us about this? Well, Doherty found that, quote, recent polls from YouGov HuffPost and Gallup show an age split on whether voters prioritize policy or electability. Both polls found that younger Democrats tended to prioritize nominating a candidate whose positions on issues were closest to their own over a candidate who they believed had the best chance of defeating Trump. Conversely, older Democrats were more likely to want an electable candidate even if they disagreed on the issues, end quote. And then she presents a graph that demonstrates this in a very striking way. As age increases, the groups diverge on their interest in electability versus policy. It's reminiscent of the age-old idea that young people are idealistic while older people are pragmatic, and there is some data here to back that up. However, there's also data here that may signal some danger in that pragmatism. Reading once more from the article, quote, By prioritizing electability, older Democrats may wind up backing a candidate with a major weakness, an inability to drive youth turnout. While younger voters tend to lean heavily Democratic, in 2016, for instance, they backed Hillary Clinton by about 20 percentage points, the challenge has always been getting them to the polls. But when they do mobilize, younger voters can have a profound impact on the election. The blue wave of 2018, for example, was powered in part by Gen Z, Millennial, and Gen X voters who cast more votes than baby boomers and people from older generations, according to the Pew Research Center. End quote. So this story is far from over, but it really is a narrative of the 2020 election, and maybe the key narrative. But I thought I'd leave you with this today to chew on just a bit. Check out the last link in the show notes, and Doherty makes a nuanced case for both sides here. I think, in the end, we all want somebody who happens to align with us on policy and can get elected, right? Like, that's the ideal. 
The primary is largely about figuring out who all these people are and how they match or don't with our own beliefs. This year, it's also about giving them a really hard look to see how they might match up against the opposition. So let us continue to look and listen. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Yesterday's adventure in tree stump removal was a reasonable start, but also, in a word, fruitless. Uh, I'm gonna need a bigger drill. Like, seriously, just a lot more power, an auger bit, all that stuff. I'm gonna have to go to the hardware store. But if you follow along on Instagram, and there is a link to my account in the show notes near the top, you may see some more hot tree stump removal picks this weekend, assuming it's not a total scorcher. No promises on whether I will succeed, but I will keep trying. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.